Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, I'm, you have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. Hello. All right. Um, I'd like to go start off by acknowledging that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you of the Wandry Land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. True that. All right, so for our program today, um, we're going to be covering a number of different topics. Um, probably one of the things that has been dominating the headlines in this past week has been the whole allegation surrounding um, Christian Porter, which we'll be discussing with having a bit of a discussion about how what all these sort of cases in terms of um, of um, sexual harassment and assault at the um, accusations towards parliamentarians and parliamentarian staffers kind of reveals about the systematic nature of sexism in society. And so we'll be having that discussion with Socialist Alliance co-convener um, Sarah Halfway, who's also written an article for Green Left on this whole topic. Then one of the other things that has, I guess, been dominating the media has been this whole aged care royal commission um, because of the whole COVID-19 crisis um, revealed some of the, the real kind of problems in our federal aged care system. And so we're going to be having a discussion with Jim McElroy, um, who is a writer for Green Left, um, about... Um, who has written about this topic about, you know, what is, um, what is the kind of response, um, you know, what, what it, what is it about this kind of Royal, um, Commission into Aged Care? And then we'll be covering all sorts of kind of different stories, um, um, that have been, that have been coming up. So, yeah, I guess the first thing I want to guess talk about is, um, this um, indefinite strike that has just started, um, organised by food workers at um, McCormack. So to summarise what's happened, um, after five years of trying to negotiate uh, a new EBA, workers at McCormack Foods have walked out of the gate at on February 25th. And these workers who are members of the United Workers' Union, have set up a community picket and are receiving uh, lots of kind of community support. To give you a bit of background on McCormack, um, McCormack Foods is a subsidiary of Canadian-based parent company McCormack & Co. It makes a lot of um, products that, you know, probably some of our listeners and some people kind of might regularly consume. It includes Ken's curry powder, aeroplane jelly, and sauces for KFC, Red Rooster, Hungry Jacks, and McDonald's. And the kind of issue that has been happening is, um, that has kind of prompted this indefinite strike, is that it has not raised workers' pay for five years, 
and wants to strip back hard-won conditions. And, of course, the last EBA ended in 2016. United Workers Secretary Susie, Susie Allison said on February 26th that the workers on, are on a below-average wage. Our members have worked every day during the pandemic to ensure McCormack could continue to provide food products to restaurants and supermarkets. In return, McCormack is now offering these essential workers no pay rise and slashing their conditions. How's that fair? And in terms of what these workers are demanding, they are demanding um, in uh, a 3% um, annual wage increase, no cuts to penalty rates or working conditions. And, of course, what has kind of happened, every time the workers have attempted to negotiate a new one, the boss put forward 0% pay rise on the table and told the union to take it or leave it. In the report from Green Left, um, workers have told Green Left that the management changed not long before their EBA ran out and the new management is much more aggressive. And, of course... Uh, they argued that the company has just been greedy as they were producing the company's wealth. And like many food supply companies during COVID-19, they have made massive profits. Even before the pandemic, McCormack reported 123 million revenue for December 2019, with profits rising over 40% a year over the previous four years. And of course, it's um, one of the things to note is... Um, Workers made a lot of sacrifices working um, at this um, at this manufacturing, um, working at McCormack's during the pandemic. They were working 90, 12 hours a day, only to be um, warded by the company refusing a pay rise. And in addition to that, the company also wants to cut shift penalties, overtime loading and meal breaks from 30 to 20 minutes, and of course, giving workers time to walk um um, to the canteen and back to their workstation, but not enough time to eat. Many of the workers of um, on strike have worked for McCormack's for uh, long periods of time. And, of course, a bit of background. Workers who um, um, have to, um, have said that they've been there for more between 19 to 25 years, and a number of them work with their partners, sons or daughters. So just to give um, also... Um, one of the things about the indefinite strike is there is an ongoing picket line happening. So if you go to 63 to 71 Fairbank Road at Clayton South, um, you'll be able to visit um, and say hello to the workers. I think workers would appreciate any support they can kind of get. Um, and for those who might not know how to necessarily get there, well, obviously you can drive. Driving is probably the easiest way to probably get there. But if you're going to take public transport, it is um, within walking distance of Westor Station, which is the station that um, to, um, that comes after Clayton on the Pakenham line. Um, but yeah, maybe Zane, do you have any kind of comments you kind of want to make on this story? Oh, just that it's, uh, over the last couple of decades, it's been a bit rare to see workers taking industrial action. So when they do, when workers go on strike like this, uh, it's important for all progressives to support them. We've got a wage growth crisis in this country. There's uh, serious wage stagnation. It's bad for the economy as a whole. And obviously it's bad for workers because their pay is not keeping up with inflation. The cost of living keeps going up and pay has to keep going up if you want to, you know, stay ahead of, of, uh, of the cost of living and not end off, end up worse off in real terms. So, 
um, these workers are to be congratulated for having the, the courage and the collective strength to band together and go on strike. And, uh, yeah, we, we wish them well and hope they can see this through to victory. It's, it's, uh, this and, is um, what we need more of right across the working class in all industries. So Yeah, here, here, Zane. And respect I, to those workers. And I guess um, the next kind of update I want to just follow on from that is I was lucky enough to attend um, the community rally that happened yesterday, and it was attended by... Um, um, Sally McManus, the ACTU um, secretary, and um, Jess Walsh, who is actually my former union secretary, who is now a Victorian kind of Labor MP. Um, and I guess in terms of updates of um, on on where where to kind of next, um, Sally McManus kind of spoke at the rally and basically said they're going to be having the trades hall executive is going to be having a discussion about how the rest of the trade union movement um, can support. Um, this ongoing strike action. Um, it was actually quite a sizable rally, like there were around 100 um, people there. Um, I'm not sure what proportion of the people there were or were the workers at the factory and so on, because um, actually that was my first time visiting um, the picket line. Um, but I think it was a very lively crowd, and we actually marched all around the kind of factory and had some really agitational kind of speeches. And I guess the next kind of thing is... There's going to be a bit of outreach um, to the community um, around this because I guess one of the things I sort of mentioned, McCormack makes a lot of the products um, that people um, that people enjoy, like the KFCs, um, potato gravy. Not that that's really that good, but that's <laughs> besides the point. Um, and and of course the good work workers, we don't you know, we don't want to insult your handicrafts. <laughs> I actually personally love KFC, but that's the, um, but I'm not a big fan of their potato gravy. Um, so that, but one of the things that you'll probably start to notice is as these workers start keep um, keep going um, keep on the strike, um, the likes of McDonald's and KFC are going to be struggling to keep up the stocks. And I think that's actually one of the things that kind of represents the kind of power of workers. I just mm. remember um, when chemist warehouse workers were going on strike. And of course, that was reflected in the retail kind of spaces of um, of chemist um, warehouse where they were actually running out of stock on particular on particular kind of products. Yeah, I've read this excellent book, which I would highly recommend to anyone. It's called The People's Republic of Walmart. And it's basically looking at how within corporations, we've already got mini chunks of a planned economy. And despite all the talk of competition and the market and blah, 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 you've actually got planned economies within corporations like Walmart and within vertically and horizontally integrated production chains, such as the distribution of the products from McCormack to restaurants like KFC and McDonald's. And it's a very interesting book because it looks at the the way that they call it pulling stock. So as everyone's getting all their burgers and the burgers are getting sauce on them, the more burgers are port- purchased, the, the more each individual fast food restaurant will automatically, through its computer systems, place orders to the factory that produces, in this case, sources and condiments to, to get more of them delivered. So, uh, yeah, reading that book, it's quite easy to see how a strike at the point of production like this would throw a substantial spanner in the works 
And, uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the, the power that those workers hold is it's, uh, it's not just this one factory. Their, their strike is going to be felt right across the, uh, you know, the restaurant industry. And there'll be a lot of pressure on the, uh, on management at McCormack to just stop being tight ass scum and give the workers a pay rise and grant their um, demands so that they can get back to work and so that these restaurants can keep getting their sauce. So, yeah, good on them. Bloody legends. Yeah. And um, just to kind of repeat, um, I highly encourage people, um, if they are able to, um, come down to the picket line. Um, the workers definitely appreciate um, visits and um, solidarity. And just to repeat that information, it, um, the fact the McCormack's factories at 63 to 71 Fairbank Road in Clayton South, Melbourne. And yet, as I kind of said, you can get there by public transport by taking um, a train to the Packardham line um, and getting off at Westall Station, which is the station that comes after Clayton. Um, so it's just a, a short four- to five-minute walk from there. Usually sometimes picket lines can be a bit difficult to get to because a lot of factories um, and workpla- um, like workplaces like this tend to be a bit out of the way and not necessarily accessible by public transport. So I think this, um, this it's, it's a good probably a good thing for in terms of building solidarity that it probably is a bit more accessible for people to visit especially for those who don't necessarily own a vehicle all right um well you're listening to green left radio and you can read more um you can read about um the mccormack um strike um and updates on it um, on greenleft.org.au, which will be regularly covering coverage of the of the strike as it's going on, and we'll continue to try and give weekly updates if there are any kind of updates um, each week. Um, maybe there might be a victory next week. Um, you never know. Okay, and I guess I'll play. I guess a quick announcement, and we'll go on to our first interview for the program with Jim. Mac- Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and it is 17 minutes past seven. And on the phone this morning, we have Jim McElroy, who is our, our correspondent from the Sydney office of Green Left. Welcome, Jim. Oh, good morning. Plane, yes. yes. Yeah, Jacob's just um, getting some stuff ready now. Um, obviously, this morning, Jim, we're keen to talk to you about the Aged Care Royal Commission, which has uh, just had its findings released this week. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview as to the findings of that Royal Commission and, uh, yeah, introduce this to our listeners? Okay, well, good morning. Good morning to all the listeners. And uh, 
to say that this is a very important report as far as the future of aged care in this country is concerned. And the report is absolutely damning of um, the state of the aged care system in Australia. Um, among the other statements that it makes is that the they identified serious systemic problems and recurrent issues that stem from problems inherent in the design and operation of the aged care system. Specifically, the two commissioners reported to uh, reported that there was inadequate funding, variable provider governance and behaviour, absence of system leadership and governance, and poor access to health care. So the report has pretty much, uh, you know, it's taken... Uh, 10,000 submissions, 23 public hearings, um, and the final report was 1,000 pages long. Even the, the summary is 150 pages. So there's an incredible amount of work that has gone into this report, and it does uh, identify a lot of problems. Um, the question is, are the, the recommendations, something like 150 recommendations, are they going to be implemented? And secondly, are they going to be sufficient to actually solve the problems that we saw? I would mention that um, the failings of our uh, aged care system were, were graphically revealed last year in, in uh, New South Wales, but particularly in Victoria, of course, because something over 600 um, elderly people died under the, under the effect of uh, the COVID pandemic in the aged care homes, which is the great majority of um, the deaths that have occurred in Australia. So, um, yeah, I mean, in the uh, evidence in the report, it, so many people gave evidence, including uh, some of the residents themselves, the nurses, the caring staff, and also their families, uh, gave very uh, sort of graphic uh, evidence of substandard care and abuse which occurred so um, yeah this was this was really a, 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 a very very graphic uh, re revelation of the problems in our aged care system which does need to be taken on um, so um, what what do you think is at the root of all of these issues that uh, that are in the, the aged care system, the myriad issues that have been identified in this report? All right. Well, there are there are a number. Of, there are a couple of uh, really drastic um, and basic uh, problems with the healthcare system and the aged care system in this country. First of all, relative to the OECD countries, which is the um, first world uh, well-off countries, Australia does uh, not spend, a, you know, a, a large proportion of its of its GDP on aged care. It is a, it is a neglected area, so that's something that needs to be addressed. We do need to fund our aged care system much more uh, uh, deeply than what we do at the moment. But secondly, and I think the fundamental problem with um, the aged care system in Australia is that it has become a privatised system. Now, this occurred another legacy of the famous 
uh, Don Howard era was the uh, was the Aged Care Act, which was passed in 1997, and that began the process of privatisation of a large sector of the aged care system. So we now have a, a situation where giant um, a private aged care uh, providers um, can often uh, receive large amounts, like billions of dollars, in, in assistance from the government, and yet their purpose is not to provide uh, the adequate care of the elderly, but rather to make profits to shareholders. So this is where we um, this is where we have to take uh, a particular note, and that's something that we we should be starting to campaign for in. in finding an alternative to the current broken system. Hmm. I guess my next question, and this is just an observation I've kind of made about, I guess, the Royal Commission, because you bring up all these kind of issues that have historically started under the kind of John Howard government, especially in terms of the cuts to kind of federal funding. And one of the interesting things I sort of noticed about the government's kind of response to the Royal Commission is they basically proposed that the, the the easy kind of solution they wanted to propose is that we need a new tax to fund um, aged care. Now, that all, in some sense, sounds all well and kind of good, but I guess in the kind of context of the fact that they have basically gutted kind of federal aged care kind of funding, it seems to be almost like a bit of a furphy, like to distract... Um, to like the government is trying to sort of say that, oh, well, yes, sure, we um not making any acknowledgement that they've actually cut um, aged care significantly, especially going back to the John Howard hair, John Howard um, era. And it's almost like they're trying to sort of propose this sort of ta- a tax as almost like a quick fix kind of solution, but not actually address the fundamental issues that their government is actually responsible for. The government, in their response so far, has been very, very limited, and they're obviously looking to finding um, uh, solutions which uh, are, the, are the easiest for them to get away with, in effect, which is the way they've handled the whole system, and generally speaking, how they handle all questions at the moment. How, how can they um, get away with a, a partial solution? Um the problem is that we have a privatised uh, uh, aged care system, similar to the problems that we face in the health system generally and in disability care and so on. We've got to look at the way in which um, we can raise substantial amounts of money in an equitable way. And the, the, one of the solutions which has been raised, but I see that the government is very reluctant to look at it, is the possibility of a an aged care levy or something similar to the Medicare levy, and it has been raised uh, that it could be something like one a one percent um, increment on the uh, aged care levy. However, the problem with that is we do not want to introduce what is a regressive, a further regressive tax to our already distorted system, which is a regressive tax system. So. Uh, instead of having a flat rate of tax, like uh, an increase in the 
Medicare level, which is currently 1.5%, the, the more equitable way would be to have a sliding scale whereby those on lower incomes pay no extra tax and those on the highest incomes pay an increase in percentage. Um, that would be that would be the most equitable way to do it. But on top of that, we have to. It's very hard to see how we can make an equitable solution to this without without changing the entire tax system. We do need to, uh, instead of cutting company tax, as the Morrison government is suggesting, um, company tax should be raised and vigorous measures implemented to stop the rampant company tax evasion that's going on. And uh, in short, access to health care and welfare for the elderly should provide, be provided by the state and funded from a progressive taxation system. Um, your uh, esteemed Socialist Alliance councillor, uh, Socialist Alliance uh, Moreland councillor Sue Bolton, wrote about this last year in writing about the um, COVID pandemic. And uh, she said that the COVID-19 disaster in residential aged care homes in Victoria and New South Wales is a tragedy, but it was waiting to happen because the system was set to put, up, put profits first. The main lesson from the disgraceful treatment of the elderly in the pandemic is that privatisation of essential health service must end. So that's what we've got to be looking at. We need a, a root and branch change in the whole system. And, how, and if we're going to raise income to pay for the changes that are necessary um, in aged care, then we need to uh, we need to look at the whole tax system and also the end of the privatisation. Because uh, one thing I will mention about COVID, it is there was there was zero death in Victoria, for example, or even nationally, in the public uh, aged care homes. Those are run by the government, but there were no deaths at all. All the deaths occurred in the privatised sector. So I think that in itself is evidence of um, of the problem that we face. Hmm. Um, uh, Jim, you've you've also just uh, had an article published in Green Left looking at uh, what the trade unions, like the Health Services Union, the Australian Nursing and Midwife Federation. And uh, the peak body, the ACTU, are saying what? What? What's their position on the, you know, how to fix aged care? Right. Yes. Well, the the, the unions have taken a very strong stand. In fact, um, to their credit, they've been campaigning on this issue right through the whole process of the Royal Commission. Um, and the the uh, nurses and midwives federation put out a very strong statement after the release of the report saying that staff ratios should be introduced to ensure that there are sufficient nursing and other care staff present at all times in residential care. So, uh, and, they, and the ANMF went on to say, this government and many previous governments have done nothing to address ever-increasing shortages of registered nurses and qualified carers in aged care without an adequate staffing and skills mix with minimum standards for care workers, nursing home residents have suffered terribly as a result of the inadequate levels of care. Mm. That was from the ANMF. There was also a strong statement by the Health Services Union, which covers other areas of aged care staff and health staff. Uh, the um, national president, uh, Gerard Hayes, said, um, we see tinkering when we need transformation. 
And he went on to say, two major reforms are needed to fix this sector. We need a substantial increase in the size of the workforce and we need to pay them more so they stay in the industry. That's why I proposed a $5 per hour increase in pay across all major age fair classifications. And he went on to say, we also need a sustainable funding model. Uh, and he went on to say, economic research with commission for the Royal Commission shows we could fund a pay rise, an additional 59,000 aged care jobs and close to 90 minutes of additional resident care per day for a 0.65% increase on the Medicare levy. I think the debate would then occur as to whether that should be a flat increase. I think I would favour a, uh, a graduated um, increase from zero up to a higher level. Hmm. I should add, but last year, all the aged care um, area unions, together with the ACTU, launched a comprehensive plan aimed at um, fixing the problems in the sector. And there were four key measures. I have time to say this. Mm. I'll just mention these. These were the... And if these measures were implemented, it would have to go a long way towards um, resolving many of the serious problems in the aged care sector. The first one is mandated minimum staffing levels and a required mix of skills and qualifications in every residential facility over every shift. That should be stressed because one of the big problems, um, just to explain, uh, is that, for example, on night shift, you know, you have a situation where there's one nurse for 150 uh, residents or one carer for 150 residents, something like that, and it's quite impossible to carry out the proper um, duties in that time. The second proposal was for transparency and accountability for government funding. So one of the problems at the moment is that money is shoveled out to a lot of these private providers. I would add that the worst offenders are the actual for-profit uh, private providers, which are the huge companies like um, Rupa and Estia, hmm. which are just in it for the money spray. There are also There's also a large sector of so-called uh, not-for-profit providers, which are, you know, a lot of the church organisations and so on, who, um, while they're technically not-for-profit, they do have to maintain the system, um, you know, on a, on a, a, prof a profitable basis. And they're, they're, generally speaking, not at the highest level of standards that the, the public, the government-owned sector are. So we need to know, and all this money shoveled into the sector, and they are not obliged to reveal exactly how they spend it. For instance, if money's put in supposedly for increased care, we don't know if it's actually being spent on increased care or whether it's just going to shareholders. Hmm. So I'll just continue. The third proposal of the unions was for mandated training requirements, including infection control and ongoing professional development accessible to all staff and paid by the employer. So that's another big question, the question of training of the staff and the proper qualifications of the staff. And that is something that is not in existence at the moment in many of these places. And uh, finally, government funding to be substantially increased linked to the provision of care and the direct employment of permanent staff with decent pay and enough hours to live on. So... The unions have taken a strong stand and if the, the sort of proposals that they put forward were implemented, it would go a long way towards 
uh, resolving a number of the issues in the aged care sector. Hmm. Well, thanks um, for that kind of, Jim. Um, I think you've kind of given a kind of really good sort of overview of the kind of political implications of this Royal Commission into the aged care kind of sector. Um, I think you might... Um, do you have, I guess, any kind of final concluding comments you would like to make? Uh, I think my, my overall comment would be that if we're going to resolve these problems and introduce a, a genuine, equitable and well-funded and, and humane aged care system for the elderly, the people who've in fact been the workers of previous generations and, and deserve um, a, a retirement, I mean, a, a, a latter part of their life whereby they are properly looked after. Actually, I'll just make one little uh, comment on that. The majority of people actually, only a, a minority of people actually go into aged care homes because generally speaking, the, the problem is that when you go into an aged care home, it's usually because you have serious health issues. So, mm. And a lot, one of the major issues in, in aged care is, is dementia. <laughs> this, is, this is the problem that um, you know, people are not in a position to really take control of their own, their own life. So... We're talking about the right at the end part of life, and, and this is this is why it requires considerable money and considerable um, uh, investment of, of human resources. But these people have been the workers of the past, and they have contributed to the development of, uh, of the national um, uh, life of the country, and they deserve proper uh, care and humane treatment at the end of their life. So we have to invest. We have to develop a new system not based on private profit, not based on um, basically exploitation of a workforce who are underpaid. And by the way, I would also add that this, uh, the, the further development of the aged care sector is probably going to be one of the growth areas in the coming period. So we need coverage by the unions. We need um, uh, involvement of the unions in determining the, uh, the overall conditions of the staff and staff themselves want uh, better conditions and they want to be, they, they feel badly about the, you know, the way in which they're forced by the circumstances to, um, you know, deal with the, the elderly people in these homes. So I think it's part of the overall development of an alternative society, of a genuine socialist society based on equity and uh, on, uh, on, a, on a socially just system, which must be a... A national system, it must be a publicly owned system, it cannot be based on private profit. Mm. So that, you need to develop a campaign between the unions who've put forward many use, useful proposals and the general community. Um, we need to develop a campaign to try to force the government to change course on aged care and make it once again, and put it in public hands and make it a genuine publicly funded and publicly owned system where both the staff and the residents can achieve a an equitable solution. Hear, hear. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, Jim. Um, yeah, I think, it, um, as I said before, I think a really good summation of the whole um, political situation surrounding um, the aged care um Situation and this Royal Commission that has been recently released. Um, so thank you again, um, Jim, for being on our program today. Thank you very much. Cheers, comrade. Your
All right, and as with a lot of our content, um, you can go to greenleft.org.au and check out uh, articles that are written by a lot of the people that we interview here on Green Left Radio. All right, it is 7.38 a.m. Stick around because uh, not too much later we're going to be speaking with Sarah Hasway about the rampant and corrosive sexism and patriarchy that has been making itself evident over the last little while. Yeah, I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and... I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. International Women's Day, Monday 8th of March, by paying homage to women and gender diverse people who are fighting for a just and equal future and creating change in their respective fields. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight Monday 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians. Join 3CR as we celebrate women and gender diverse people making waves. For details, go to www.3cr.org.au slash IWD2021. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio, um, and on the line we have our second guest of the program, um, Sarah Halfway, who is a co-convener of Socialist Alliance and has recently written an article but just for our listeners' um, information, just a bit of a content warning um, for this kind of discussion we're going to be having with Sarah Halfway. Um, there will be mentions of uh, sexual assault and kind of general kind of sexism um, as we kind of be uh, as we are going to be kind of discussing this whole kind of issue that has kind of blown up in the parliament and I guess what it kind of reveals about sexism um, in society um, and so on. Um, so yeah, just just a bit of content warning there. So yeah, good morning, um, Sarah. Morning, Baker. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I guess um, you have just kind of recently written an article um, about the kind of the nature of gendered violence, I guess, in the workplace. And I guess taking this to what's kind of happening, I guess, in the parliament, um, starting with 
um, Brittany, um, how Brittany, um, Higgins, um, spoke about, um, spoke out about, um, about the rape, um, that she had, um, received at, um, the hands of a staffer of, um, the defense minister, Linda, Linda Reynolds. And I guess since then, that whole, um, since she has spoken out about that, um, you know, numbers of kind of women have kind of spoken forward. And of course, it's all culminated in this allegation, um, a historical allegation against, um, Christian Porter, who is, um, the current, um, our, def- um, cur- um, who, what did I- Got uh, the Attorney General. The Attorney General. So I guess, yeah, maybe start our, I guess, discussion on, you know, what this sort of situation is, says about, um, what this kind of particular situation and how it's kind of unfolding. Yeah, I guess, well, I mean, the first comment to make is I'm not particularly surprised or shocked by, um, any of the revelations of <laughs> allegations, um, that have come out of Parliament in the last period. I wish I could say I was, but I'm not. Um, and I think I, you know, touched on this in the article that I wrote for Green Left. I mean, if you look at um, the Dyson Hayden case in the High Court, the fact that we've got women um, in the legal system in Tasmania currently campaigning against, you know, a to- toxic culture of sexism in their industry, um, we've got, you know, a peak medical body APRA surveying medical professionals and students trying to enter the medical field reporting in, you know, massively high numbers of bullying, harassment and sexual harassment. Um, and, you know, it was only a few years ago that we um, found out about the rates of sexual harassment on university campuses and what the administration were doing to, you know, cover it up. Um, you know, it's really... No surprise um, to hear that this is happening in federal parliament as well. Um, I think, you know, perhaps what is different is the level of response to it. Um, I think some of these cases in, say, like the Dyson Hayden High Court and now um, what's coming out of parliament, because, you know, it is white-collar... Um, you know, the high level of education, higher paid jobs, I feel like the response from the public and the media is greater um, than, say, you know, the rampant rates of um, sexual harassment of women working in retail and hospitality. So um, I guess one point to make is that this behaviour is not acceptable in any workplace or in any industry. Um, but I also understand that as our elected leaders and people that are, um, you know, setting an example for young men across the country, they do need to be held to a higher standard of behaviour. Um, and so on, on that level, I can understand why we would expect more from people like uh, Christian Porter or Linda Reynolds or, or any of these people that have been involved recently. And I guess that leads into kind of, I guess, the next kind of question, um, because the whole, I want to kind of hear, I guess, your comments on this, what had the, the federal government's kind of response to all these kind of allegations that have been happening within the Parliament House? Um, what, what can you kind of say about their, well, I'll just go preface it by saying they're completely, what, what would you say about their completely inadequate kind of response to the, um, to this, these issues? Yeah, no, it's pretty disgusting. I mean, 
you know, Christian Porter's performance the other day um, and, you know, basically saying that, you know, I, you know <laughs> if there's any kind of um, inquiry, you know, not, not criminal, not a legal inquiry, but just any kind of inquiry into what happened, it will undermine the rule of law in Australia, which is the most ridiculous, hyperbolic thing I've ever heard. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've recently heard that... Um, Linda Reynolds, in front of all her staffers, when she found out that Bridget had gone public, referred to her as a lying cow in front of, like, several staff. Um, but then these are the people that, you know, need to go and take a mental health break and check themselves into hospital. So, like, the whole thing is just pretty disgusting um, because, you know, they've been caught out, they've been called on their behaviour and they want to paint themselves as the victim um, in this scenario and they're definitely not the victim. Um, and, you know, go, it goes back to, um, you know, needing to hold these people to a higher standard of account for their behaviour. I think it's the very minimum. Um, um, there does need to be um, an inquiry into Christian Porter. Um, you know, it, it's not about um, whether whether criminal charges are placed or not, because it's apparent that's not going to happen. But the question is now, is this person fit for office? Is he fit to be in Cabinet? Is he fit to be Attorney-General? Um, and without without some kind of independent inquiry, it just feels like brushing it under the rug and, um, you know, as a boys' club looking out for each other, which is unacceptable. And, yeah, the nature of the allegation against Christian Porter is, in fact, a very kind of serious kind of allegation. And, you know, I thought it was quite prophetic myself that Christian Porter, on the question of um, whether he should resign or not, basically argued that he shouldn't resign because that basically means that any allegation um, can destroy someone's career, which I think is insulting um you know to all survivors of um sexual assault and vict- and also it's also insulting um you know because this being an attorney general is actually almost like akin to being the sec- it's almost the, s- the second most powerful position um in politics of course that's debatable but i i would argue it is almost in a sense, the second most powerful position you can potentially be in the government because essentially you're giving the government advice on a lot of the legal matters, um, etc., and also have a control of a lot of the laws um, and so on. Um, but I guess going, um, seeing that a bit aside, um, because I think part of what you kind of brought up um, brings up, I think, another important discussion point, and that is the government's kind of response has um, to these allegations, especially Scott Morrison, have basically been trying to say, oh, you know, um, for all people who are victims um, or have allegation support, they should just take them to the police. Um, and, of course, as long-time socialists um, and feminists, there's a lot of kind of problems with that argument of just deferring all these things to the police. And I guess I wanted to kind of hear you kind of elaborate on why um, Scott Morrison saying that, oh, all these matters should just go to the police and they should be dealt with the um, police directly. Why is that completely inadequate? Yeah, no, it is completely inadequate. And you're right, because it fails to acknowledge... Um, the problems with which police handle these um, types of allegations. 
Um, and, you know, I just think separate from any kind of criminal investigation, all employers, all workplaces have a responsibility to provide a safe workplace. So, um, you know, if I if I was in a workplace and there'd been, a, been an instance of sexual assault um, and the victim had raised that in the workplace, that employer not only has a duty to the person who's raised it, they've got a duty to everybody else in their workplace to provide a safe environment. Um, so whether someone's going to take that to the cops or not and there's criminal charges or not is irrelevant because it's happened in their workplace. <laughs> There has to be a process, there has to be an investigation and it has to be dealt with because, you know, if you're just ignoring it, then it's, you're ignoring a significant OHS issue. So, I mean, that translates to the parliamentary level um, and, you know, I think some of us saw this coming when we watched that Four Corners report last year Um which, you know, wasn't, <clears throat> wasn't just about Christian Porter. I think Alan Tudge came up, but this general culture of um, what I almost see is predatory behaviour of young female staffers in Parliament. Um, so there's the, the, the workplace safety aspect, but there's also taking politics out of it, because obviously as socialists, we don't see the Liberal Party as having much... <laughs> much legitimacy at all because we don't agree with their politics but you've got to protect the integrity of those officers and if 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 the broader public thinks that there's rapists in office that they're not being held to a higher standard that there's not an investigation that these people can just do whatever they want to whoever they want there's no trust there anymore in government um and that that's a pretty um desperate state of affairs um, and, you know, whether it was Scott Morrison, Albanese or any other political party in government, I'd be saying the same. They've got a responsibility to the public um, to investigate this properly um, and restore some level of trust. Um, yeah. Now, Sarah, you're an uh, a experienced union organiser. How does this prevalence, ongoing prevalence of sexism and sexual assault in workplaces right across society, uh, in universities, how does that link in with the um, anti-union laws in this country restricting the right to strike and the low union density? Do you, do you think those sort of things are interconnected? Yeah, absolutely, because I, you know, I really say over the last, couple of decades that, you know, in the first instance, it's been women in their unions effectively campaigning their own unions in the first instance to take these issues up because, you know, shock horror, women are 50% of the workforce and, um, you know, our issues in the workplace matter. Um, but in the last sort of handful of years, um, I've seen particularly in Victoria, Victorian Trades Hall, um have released their gendered violence at work report, which really started to show the data um, in how prevalent gendered violence is in the workplace. Um, and they have been lobbying to change our mindset around this, that it's, you know, it's not just a bit of harassment in the workplace. Gendered violence is an OHMS issue um, that work cover needs to take up, that unions need to take up. Um, 
So that, and that is absolutely linked to unions' ability to be able to organise in the workplace um, for, you know, all workers, but particularly women workers to have that capacity in the workplace to be able to do union work, to be able to organise. Um, so, yeah, it is pretty concerning when you read this omnibus bill when they're, you know, trying to casualise um, part-time staff, strip rights, um, all of it. Um, it, it is just going to hinder our um, our ability to keep pushing these issues um, forward. And I guess I want to kind of hear your um, position, I guess, in terms of a last question to kind of tie things up. Um, you know, as a kind of socialist, what, um, what is your kind of analysis on the kind of systematic kind of roots of sexism, um, especially in relation to everything, I guess, we've been talking about? Yeah, look, um, I think probably one of the underpinning things that, you know, when we get onto this topic in the mainstream, we talk about workplace culture, um, you know, we talk about, you know, we just need to educate um, boys and men not to rape and this, that and the other. But in the mainstream discourse, there's very little discussion about the economic question, um, you know, and there's, there's many facets of that, but, you know, the unpaid... Um, domestic labour, largely of women, um, you know, caring for children, caring for family members, um, the the fact that we've got a number of, like, largely feminised industries that are paid, like, pathetically low wages, that that work isn't valued in society, be it, you know, early education, um, social and welfare sectors, um, the disparity in super, the fact that older women are the largest growing population of homelessness. Like, there's so many factors there um, that until women largely have economic stability and their material interests are met, um, you know, it, it's hard to think that, you know, somehow we're just going to change everyone's minds and women, women will magically start being treated equally. <laughs> Um, and I, that that economic basis is something that socialists take up very clearly. Um, and I think we do need to um, keep taking that up um, at every opportunity that we get. And that ties into ties into everything, you know, wages, housing, healthcare, um, all of the above. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a really important point that we need to keep making. Okay. Well, thanks, um, Sarah. Do you have any, I guess, final kind of comments you'd like to make? Um, yeah, look, I just, I think the final comment is, you know, I think there's a lot of women um, feeling frustrated and um, the organisers of this March 15 National Day of Action, um, some of them, um, you know, felt that they've retired, felt that we'd already had formal equality, um, which we do in a sense, but... I think the events of the last week show us that, you know, it doesn't matter how much equality we have on paper um, and to a large extent it doesn't matter how many women politicians we have in Parliament, it is going to depend on the strength um, of the grassroots movements on the ground. So it is really exciting um, to see that we've got a number of IWD rallies coming up in this March 15 National Day of Action, but I think the most important thing that women can be doing at the moment is to get out on the street um, at these upcoming rallies and um, make that fourth wave of feminism happen <laughs> and get this campaign going. Word. Yeah. 
Well, um, just for kind of listeners' information, and I will be announcing it as well again following this um, following this interview. Um, there is going to be the International Women's Day rally on the eighth of March um, at two p.m. outside the par- um, outside the Parliament House. And Monday, the eighth of March, is actually a public holiday, so most people won't um, have work um, when that rally is happening. So they all should hopefully be able to attend on two p.m. outside the Parliament House, and then. Um, there, as Sarah mentioned, on the 15th of March, there is going to be, there has been a National Day of Action being called. Um, it's being titled March for Justice, um, with hashtag Women's March. Um, and they're, they're basically all going to be converging in. The main protest is going to be centered outside the Parliament House. However, there's going to be protests organised in every major city in Australia. In fact, I'm pretty sure there is going to be one on the 15th of March in Melbourne at this stage. So I highly encourage, you know, for everyone who's feeling angry about this topic um, and wants to take action, I, I think those two rallies, I think, are a good kind of first step um, because I think we need to get... People need to be out on the streets in this. And, of course, with our government being clearly unaccountable... Um, to any um, about these about these issues, then I think you know it is mu- it, it reinforces the importance that we have to mobilise on the streets. Absolutely. All right. Um, so I'll just um, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we're just interviewing. We're just having a discussion with Sarah Halfway. Um, yeah. Thanks heaps for speaking with us, Sarah. Thanks, guys. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'll just go play, I guess, a quick announcement, and then we'll move on to the activist's um, calendar. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. It is 8 a.m. on a fine Friday morning, and now that makes it means that it's time for the activist calendar. And the activist calendar, we try to bring up announcements of any sort of upcoming activist events, protests, rallies, public discussions um, that are happening in Melbourne at the moment. And sometimes we cover. Um, events that are also happening in um, regional Victoria, if there's any to kind of advertise. So the first event I would like to note is there's going to be a refugee rally and indefinite and arbitrary detention of refugees. Um, that's going to be happening on Friday, March the 5th, which is tonight at 6pm at the State Library. And the rally is actually part of a National Day of Action and 
the, uh, each of the rallies. Um, so if you're listening to this program from, um, from Brisbane to, um, or, uh, Canberra or I think Darwin, um, no, so Darwin, uh, Brisbane and Adelaide, I think as far as I know, are all having national days of action, but you can possibly find details on greenleft.org.au for all kind of the details of the events that I guess are happening. So that's going to be happening on Friday, March the 5th, 6pm at the State Library, which is tonight. Um, so yeah, it's going to be featuring Baruz Bashani, so I think it's going to be a really great and important rally to attend to. But I guess especially since a number of refugees are still detained in detention centres. However, one thing we sort of forgot to mention as part of the headline kind of news earlier is that a number of refugees have been recently released, um, including over 50 refugees at Kangaroo Point Hotel in Brisbane, which has been a site of ongoing struggle and campaigning. So, yeah, I think it's been a great um, a great development, but I think we need to go keep going further. We need to... Um, attend, um, we need to um, mobilise for this rally and ensure that the whole detention policy ends. The next event happening, and this is sort of happening, unfortunately, around the same time as the refugee rally, but um, there's going to be a film screening tonight of Women of Steel on Friday, March the 5th at 5.30pm for a 7.15pm start. And this is going to be happening at the Shreds Hall, Solidarity Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And it's also going to be followed by a Q&A. On on Sunday, there is going to be a peaceful protest to support um, farmers, um, i.e. Um, the f- ongoing farmers' strike in India. So this is a, a protest organised by the Indian community, and it's going to be happening out on Sunday, March the 7th, outside the Parliament of Victoria from 3 to 7pm. So that's definitely going to be, I think, an important event to attend. And then on Monday, March the 8th, as I kind of mentioned, there's going to be a rally in March, International Women's Day at 2pm at the Parliament House. On Tuesday, March the 9th, there is going to be an online forum, Why Capitalism Needs Sexism. And this is going to be at um, the Resistance Centre, Level 5407 Swanson Street. Um, and it's been organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. And the event is also being organised via Zoom as well. Um, so you can attend it both in person and Zoom. But if you'd like to attend in person, you can RSVP to 0458958385 for in-person attendance. Um, and just to note some other events, um, the daily refugee protests are still happening, as far as I know. So they're um, happening at every weekday at 5 p.m. outside the Park Hotel. And um, isn't the rally today marching there? Yeah, the rally today will be marching there at 6 p.m. So yeah, and then there's going to be then 3 p.m. on weekends. So you can see Stand Together for Justice for more information, and to give a plug for the McCormack. Um, workers on strike, you can visit the picket line at 63 to 71 Fairback Road um, in Clayton South. And then some of the other events I want to note, on Tuesday, March the 9th, there's going to be a film screening of Women Are Steel Again, but this time at the Cinema Nova, 6.45pm at the Cinema Nova. So if you look up the Cinema Nova website, you should be able to get details on how to book. Um, some other events... Um, to kind of note, I'm just, just quickly checking, um, my calendar. Um, just looking at 
the different because there's a few events that we sort of haven't completely listed on the activist calendar. On the 15th of March, as I noted, there's going to be a March for Justice. Um, and I'm just trying to find the rally details in Melbourne, but just to note, there is definitely going to be a rally in Melbourne. I, as far as I know, it's possibly at 2 p.m. outside the Parliament House on the 15th of March, but I'm not 100% sure. So next week, uh, next week's program will definitely have, um, the details, um, the kind of full details, but I haven't been able to find it. But as far as I know, it will definitely be happening on March 5th. Um, so I definitely think that's going to be an important kind of rally to kind of mobilise for. And then the last um, event I kind of want to announce is um, many, um, we've been sort of going on about it in some of our previous programs, um, being Green Left Radio, but um, Green Left Radio is going to be having a special 30th anniversary event, 30 years of Green Left, and it's going to be featuring special guest speaker Kavita Krishna, who is an Indian feminist and a leader of the CPI ML. So this is going to be an online event happening for, on Saturday, March the 27th at 7pm, and this is going to be a special event to help mark Green Left's 30th anniversary. And yeah, um, it will be online and you can book and you can get the details on how you can book a ticket for it on greenleft.org.au. And then lastly, on Sunday, March the 28th, um, at 2 p.m. at the State Library, there's going to be the annual Walk for Justice for Refugees, um, the Palm Sunday Rally, which I think is going to be a very important rally to attend. It happens every year and it's going to be the next big refugee rights mobilisation after the one that's going to be happening kind of today. Um, so yeah, Zane, do you have any sort of extra events to sort of add that I haven't sort of talked, spoken about yet. Um, did you mention the Raise the Job Seeker Rate rally? Ah, no, I haven't. So if you can get those details, that'd be great. I think there's two rallies happening, um, one on Friday and I think one on Sunday. Uh, there's one on March, Sunday, March 21 at uh, 2 p.m. at the State Library. Uh, raise Job Seeker above the poverty line. Uh, we spoke to Pass Forgione last week about that. Um, it's just horrendous and completely unnecessary the way that uh, Job Seeker keeps people in absolute poverty. Uh, it doesn't need to be that way. And, yeah, fortunately over the last couple of years we've seen a sustained organised campaign to raise the rate. It's just starting to get a little bit of traction and, uh, yeah, it onward marches that campaign. So, yeah, Sunday, March 21, 2 o'clock at the State Library. Mm. Raise job seeker above the poverty line. And there's going to be, um, that rally is actually part of a week of, um, national action. So basically a seven days of national action. It's been called by, um, that, um, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and the Anti Poverty Network. I think a coalition of different sort of anti poverty groups actually came together and basically came up with, um, organizing actions around these kind of seven days from Friday, March the 19th, I think for that particular week. So there's going to be another rally on Friday, March the 19th, um, before the Sunday rally. Um, but, of course, this is going to be happening at 12 p.m. at 4 Treasury Place, um, which, as far as I know, is um, Daniel Andrews' office or the State Premier's office, so or the Treasury. Um, so that's going to be happening at 4 Treasury Place, um, 12 p.m., and it's been organised by Australian Unemployed Workers Union, Living Incomes for Everyone and Tomorrow Movement. Um, so, yeah, I think those, or both those rallies, I think will be, I guess, re- will be very important to attend, um, especially in terms of putting pressure on the government around their completely pathetic um, job seeker increase.
Okay. Well, I think that's um, pretty um, pretty much everything for the activist calendar. Um, but just remember, you can possibly um, find a lot of these details of these events on the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au, and check out our activist calendar. But yeah, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, I'll just go play a get a quick announcement. <laughs> Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And I guess for the rest of the program, um, we're thinking of, we'll cover a few kind of news articles, um, that are currently in the pages of greenleft.org.au. Um, so I'll get, um, Zane to kind of start off. Uh, now just before I go into this latest article, I will give a plug to the monthly, uh, radical music, radical albums wrap up by Matt Ward. We interviewed Matt Ward late last year. Uh, he himself is a composer. He writes uh, electronic music, um, and he just dropped an album about Elon Musk's futile and bizarre attempts to travel to Mars and terraform the planet with nuclear weapons. A uh, bit of a crackpot, and uh, it's a source of inspiration for music. And yeah, Matt does his monthly wrap-up of Radical Albums, and the latest one was released last week. So if you go to the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au, there is a cultural descent section. Uh, it looks at arts, culture, and music, and you'll be able to find Matt's latest uh, wrap-up of Radical Albums there, including and and his older ones. He, uh, they are monthly. All right. Uh, now, I would like to talk uh, about the ongoing and deepening crisis in Burma or Myanmar. Uh, there's an article at Green Left by Zachary Levinson and Jeffrey Ong, and it's an analysis of, uh, of what's happening in Myanmar. Uh, Zachary Levinson is editor of Spectre Journal, and he spoke to Jeffrey Ong, who's a postgraduate student at Columbia University researching the politics of infrastructure in and around Myanmar's economic zones and trade corridors. So there was a coup on February 1, and uh, that that coup was against the uh, democratic, the democratically elected government of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's New League for Democracy, and since then, there has been ongoing uh, mass resistance, a uh, bunch of 
the NLD politicians were uh, arrested, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who's under house arrest. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of organised workers from various um, workplaces have uh, gone on strike. There's large-scale work stoppages, street demonstrations, urban blockades and general unrest. Medical workers and other public sector workers were among the first to organise uh, work stoppages against the coup. And they're increasingly being met with repression uh, but what's, I guess, interesting and significant about this latest clash is that previously uh, in in 2011 and, and the culmination of a sort of extended process of, um, of, of protest um, was that the, the, the military junta in Burma agreed to democratic elections uh, but retained um, something like um, I think it's I think it's twenty five percent of the Burmese Parliament is um, is reserved for delegates of the military. I'm pretty sure it's twenty five percent. I don't think it's written in this article, but it basically means that. You can't just win a democratic election. You've got to win a, a ridiculously large majority in order to be able to overcome the that huge block of seats that's reserved for the military. So there's been this kind of modified quasi-democracy over the last sort of um, 10 years or so in, uh, in Myanmar, and... I guess what's significant about the current clashes and the current uh, repression is that I guess people in Myanmar are giving up on the idea that the that there can be a gradual process of reform or that the military will kind of give away its power. So, um, yeah, this article is looking at the more sort of um, adversarial nature of the current um, um, movement to to overturn this coup and the, the article is also looking at foreign capital and how that's linked with um, kind of how the the Myanmar military gains some of its strength from its ties um, with foreign governments and western capital so, yes, well worth a look and really, um, I, I think, a very significant political development. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, LGBTIQ groups have been quite active in the uh, protests in Myanmar and some self-conscious farmer-led or peasant-led protests have emerged um as well, so back in about 2000 and when was that? 2007 maybe. Um, there was some big protests, and monks played a really major role. Um, these current protests against the coup in Myanmar are notable in that they are much more of a worker-led uh, phenomena. So. Yes, um, 
very, very uh, interesting and um, more strengths to their arm. Hopefully the um, the protesters are able to persist and uh, overturn this coup and scrap the uh, the system of military government in Burma. But that's 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 a pretty hardcore fight that they're engaged in at the moment, and uh, solidarity is going to be essential. So keep an eye out here in Melbourne for solidarity protests, so you can show your uh, visible and visceral support for the masses in Burma. Yeah, and I guess some of the um, one of the more more interesting things about the developments um, in Myanmar has been, I think, the fact that workers have actually gotten organised. In fact, there has been a general strike in response to this military coup, um, which I think is quite ex- an exciting development, um, especially in the context where, from talking to left-wing people about Myanmar, um, the organised trade union movement is not necessarily that strong. Um, it's probably even weaker than some um, than other countries. So the fact that in a kind of response to a crisis such as a military coup um, that workers are able to kind of self-organise, I guess, in response, I think is a kind of a real kind of inspiration, um, So, which I think is a, a, quite a, a quite exciting development. Now, you get, as Zane said, you can kind of read more kind of details in Green Left. And I just want to give another plug to another kind of article related to this whole situation, and that is the issue of Australian mining companies and um, and their links to the to the military in Burma. So there's a whole article in Green Left written by Alan Jennings, who we potentially might get online um, on the line for our next week's kind of program to have a bit of discussion about, um, basically kind of outline the sort of links between some of these Australian mining companies and um, and the, the events that are happening in Myanmar. So I think that will be, I guess, an interesting kind of thing to follow up as a, as a discussion for uh, an, another week. Now, I'll just go play, I guess, a quick announcement and then we'll move on to maybe having a bit of a discussion about another kind of topic. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Hey, good. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, we're getting quite close, I guess, to the end of our program. Um, but I guess I want to kind of raise kind of one last kind of discussion. And that is actually, I've just sort of reflected a bit um, on sort of our coverage for like the past several weeks, but we haven't actually spoken, said anything about what's happening in the United States for like the past month or so. Maybe we might have featured a few mentions or interview here and there. But there's actually overwhelmingly quite a lot has been happening in the United States. Um, earlier last month, there were the whole Texas winter storms um, that was happening and devastating Texas. And of course, this is something that is literally a direct result of climate change. Um, power is kind of regularly coming out. Um, and of course, energy companies are trying to reap massive profits out of this crisis. And in fact, there has been reports from people who have um, 
received like a thousand to ten thousand dollar electricity bills. It's crazy cowboy capitalism in the energy sector there. And one of the interesting things which I've read in the coverage of of the blackouts in Texas is that the Texas power grid is islanded. It's not connected to the rest of the USA. And that's a huge problem. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the reason they've done that is to avoid federal regulations. They wanted this cowboy, um, you know, libertarian, no regulation sort of <laughs> power system. And well, one of the downsides of that is when you have interruptions to power supply, there ain't no one outside of Texas that you can borrow some electricity off because you've cut yourself off from the network. Hmm. So that's been a huge factor. And yeah, people signed up to these power deals, which uh, allow power companies to, to gouge thousands of dollars from those people who did still have power connected during the blackouts. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. And um, though you can read actually more about this whole situation because we've had a number of articles up in greenleft.org.au. So if you go to greenleft.org.au, um, and then check out our World International section. We have a number of articles covering this whole Texas kind of blackout, and probably one of the more amusing sort of events that happened out of that um, was the situation of Senator Ted Cruz, um, who decided for some bizarre reason... He, he um, a ScoMo. Yeah, he pulled a ScoMo, basically. Um, he decided for some bizarre reason that he... While this, while a lot of his constituents, because he is a senator um, and represents the state of Texas, while he decided to pull a scomo and decided to go to on holiday to somewhere around Mexico or something, and he received so much backlash um, for that. Um, in the middle of a crisis, he just leaves on a plane um, to Mexico. Not not considering the fact that America is still. Um, going through a, 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 a um, going through the COVID nineteen pandemic, which sort of raises questions about what kind of rational sense would you be to to leave and go to another country? And yeah, he went. He got received. He was massively uh, attacked um, for that. And of course, the excuses he made on national television were quite pathetic, including trying to blame his own children for why he had to take a holiday. And during during a a, a, natu- a massive disaster, and then I guess going into and I won't have time to go into real kind of detail about this, but there has been um, a whole thing happening in the Congress in the United States around this whole COVID kind of relief um, kind of bill. And on the onset, there is actually a num- there are some progressive measures in the bill. Um, and of course, a lot of the things are about giving a lot of support to, um, to people and businesses that have been impacted by the COVID-19 package. It's like a 1.1 trillion kind of package. Um, and this is something that's being pushed by the new, um, Joe Biden presidency. And, um, it has been a subject of lots of debate in the sort of Congress, et cetera. One of the things I kind of want to focus on has been this kind of promise of $2,000 stimulus checks. And the Democrats have, in some sense, essentially backpedaled um, from the $2,000 stimulus checks, and essentially they are introducing a $1,600 stimulus checks. Basically, these stimulus checks are basically, it's unconditional kind of checks that will just go to... Well, the idea of it was it was going to go to the majority of the population. 
Now, thanks to moderate Democrats and Republicans, it the legislation has been since watered down, and now they've tried to basically... It's probably not the worst thing in the world, but I don't think it's a good precedent. Um, basically, they've attempted to exclude people who earn over a certain number of income from receiving the stimulus checks. When actually, you know, I the idea of this $2,000 stimulus check should have just gone unconditionally to everyone, like regardless of kind of income, while in its current stage, it will be going to the people who need it, i.e. people who own over under $100,000. I actually thought that my point of view is having in terms of the economic crisis that the United States has faced, having unconditional stimulus checks of $2,000 to everyone was actually, I think, a good policy. Um, And I think, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that the the Democrats have essentially backpedaled from that promise and they're essentially using the argument that, you know, because they want to get a certain unity of agreement between the moderate Democrat senators and... Um, and so on. And there's all this sort of politicking kind of happening. And it's a bit hard to sort of go into explain. Um, they've essentially almost backpedaled from that. But of course, the legislation, as it will get passed, will still include at least a thousand six hundred going to quite a large number of people, which I think will be a positive thing. So that has been one thing that is currently happening in the United States. We currently don't have an article in Green Left about that quite yet, but I'm sure there will be something soon. There's just, as I kind of noted, there's been so much sort of happening in the United States. We almost, it's like we need a whole kind of program (laughs) dedicated to the US to cover everything that has been happening, especially around immigration reform and so on. Yeah. um, The Sydney Green Left team are uh, producing a new podcast as well. And their, their fifth episode is looking at QAnon and other sort of, uh, contemporary conspiracy theories. Um, and yeah, that's, that's worth a listen as well. I know that when I was first getting radicalized around the time of the Iraq war, I was, uh, kind of drawn in for a little while towards some of those conspiracy theories about the, the giant lizard people and stuff. So yeah, that's plausible. But the thing that I didn't like about it is it didn't point towards any sort of political, like, here's how we bring down the lizard people. And that was ultimately what made me step away from those conspiracy theories. Yeah. Well, you can actually listen to the program now on the greenleft.org.au website. So, yeah, I'll definitely recommend listening to that. Anyway, we're getting right into the end of our program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um and also all our guests for being on the program. Um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Missions, which will be um, happening right after this program. And, yeah, we'll all kind of see you next Friday. Yes, see you then. Have a good uh, long weekend and see you at International Women's Day. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. arise. Well, 
Change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.